Hey guys, thank you so much for coming on today's podcast. Today we have with us a very special guest. He's one of the top entrepreneurial minds in Southeast Asia and is the co-founder of Faith, a digital merchant platform. He's also a Cornell alumni and an Eisenhower fellow. And in his past life, he was the COO of Groupon Malaysia and product manager at JobStreet. Thank you, Chen Chao. Thank you so much for coming on today. How are you? Good, good. Yeah. Thanks for having me. No worries. Thank you. Uh, so, Chen Chao, I thought I'd start this interview talking to you about your childhood. Talk to us a little bit about what's life growing up for you in Malaysia. Yeah. So, I came from a very small town, Nibok Tabak. So, it's a small town in the south of Penang State. So, that was where I grew up. My secondary school was in Jisin High School, so in Bukit Matajam. So it's a mid-suburb kind of thing in Penang State as well. So about maybe for both, it's about maybe 45 minutes to an hour from Penang Island, where the city center is. Yeah. So, and my, throughout my primary school, high school were in Chinese education. So my school teacher, the teacher, the assembly was in Mandarin, teacher teach in Hokkien. So I went through a lot of those kind of things. So speaking English was not something that we do yeah. as I grew up. So if you try to speak some English, your friends will say, hey, you try to show off and everything. So I ended my high school with very minimal English. So that was sort of how I started. I was, and then I, I got a ch- lucky to get an Asian scholarship. So I went to Singapore for a few months. And then after that, I got a Malaysian government public service department, GPA scholarship. So I came back to Malaysia. And you're going through one year preparing program and eventually got the chance to further my studies to the States. So that flight when I went to US was actually my first time sitting on a plane. Right. And I actually went on the plane before my parents went on the plane. So to be honest, very nervous, excited, I think all kinds. Was like never thought, never knew what is it expected to be the plane. I didn't even know what should I dress up. I even dressed up in coat. I thinking yeah. that that's a typical dress code. Yeah. But I think that was a excitement went over all the way. So I think the flight was a to from KL to Taipei, Taipei to Los Angeles, wow. Los Angeles to Pittsburgh, and Pittsburgh to Ithaca. So it was, was a what year was this? Two thousand one. Uh, I flew on August nineteen, two thousand one. Okay. So this was pre-iPhone, pre-WhatsApp, pre-social media. So you couldn't really con- uh, connect with like people who were already there to make friends or even contact your family if something was wrong. Yeah, no phone. So I didn't. Have, I actually tr- went through my entire uni life with no laptop and no cell phone. How how did you survive? How, like how do you study? Do you just stay in the library? Yeah. So so yeah. We, my, I still remember my uni got 7 million books in library. So it's a lot of the physical books. There is already laptop, uh, desktop laptop for some people, I think, but I rely on the computer labs. And it, it was a bit, and I think those days, because most people don't have a cell phone. Right. So you don't feel that different because people won't be like, oh, let me try to call you. Because almost, yeah. maybe only the privileged 5-10% of people got a phone. Yeah. The rest of it actually don't have a phone. So it was actually like normal. Yeah. Yeah, I see. I see. And no internet on the phone anyway, even for those people that have it. So they only can use it to call. Yeah. And maybe send a message, right? Yeah, very limited connectivity. I also like to circle back a little bit because I feel like a lot of our listeners out there um, who are not from Malaysia, I think sometimes it's a little bit hard to understand the, the sort of um, challenges growing up as you know a Chinese Malaysian boy. 
um, tertiary education opportunities were far and few, especially for um, such a prestigious Ivy League university like the one you went to as well. Talk to us a little bit about you know your work ethic growing up as a as a kid and some of the experiences and challenges you faced growing up. Yeah, so I think to be honest, a lot of times as I grew up, I didn't know what is the future potential, right? Mm. So I think as someone, and I think those are the very early days of internet. I never used, I never knew of Google, or even before Google came about, right? The free Facebook, free Google, where I think that time when I was in my end of high school, that time, there's a few more established companies have a website, Mm -hmm. right? And even when I applied to uni, we actually went to a website to fill out a form with an address and they will physically mail the booklet to us in this part of the world, right? So you take two weeks for the form, the thing to come in and then we physically use pen to fill out the form and then put it in the mailbox and send it over, right? So there's a lot of those kind of uh, earlier days, things that maybe today we were like, why are we doing that, right? Yeah, yeah we're taking it for granted. Yeah, and I think that for me, as I grew up, I think looking back at high school, primary school, secondary school, high school, a lot was only focused on exams, right? Mm-hmm. Came in from small town, mm-hmm. not knowing what is out there. Never never think that far, to be honest. You're just going through layer over layer. Okay, I'll finish first year, second year, fifth yeah. year. And just go through that. Okay, you have this government exams, finish it next exam. And not knowing what's the future, right? Never really thinking what could be, right? Mm-hmm. I think in my family, like no one has gone to uni as well. So it was not something that would think of like, okay, I'll go to uni as I graduated. I think we live okay and not luxury, but never had to go hungry. So I think my parents take good, decent, good care of us. So I think we got the fundamental, right? right. Basically. Yeah, so luxury food would be KFC or McDonald's. <laughs> yeah. What did your parents do, Jen? Yeah, so my father was uh, in a health inspector. So he basically helped to check the food quality, water quality, cleanliness, right. like Aedes mosquito and stuff. My mom is a nurse. I see. So middle middle class family, you grew up kind of having to not be too luxurious in terms of like what you eat, what you wear and, and places you go. And and that was your first flight, even as like your whole family. None of them has uh, been on a plane before. And so were you always entrepreneurial as a kid? Because like now you're, you know, so looked up to in the Southeast Asian space. Like as a kid, did you know that that was where you wanted to be? No, de- definitely never thought about it. Actually, even when I went to uni or even graduated from uni, I never don't think I even ever think of or thought of, right? And actually, even after my first job, second job, I think in my first five, six years of career, I was in Accenture first and I went to Job Street. I think both, I never thought that, okay, one day I'm going to be that, right? I think for both Accenture and Job Street, I was at the bottom of the food chain, right? So basically, no one reported to me. So maybe at most it's at a certain project for a short period of time, but never, no one has a formal reporting into me. So it was basically at the bottom of food chain, just working on it. So I think never thought, right? So I think as I hit my age 30, I think I never, at that time, I didn't even think of, okay, I'll be managing teams, 
let alone managing a company, right. let alone starting right. a company, right? So that's definitely not in my dictionary or even mindset thinking. So I think both my parents work at one job, one place, and they work till their retirement, right? So, right. so, so the thinking of a lot of this thing is not even there thinking like, oh, one day I will build this or that. I think, no, I think it's a very far dream beyond, I think, to be honest. Right, okay. So you you kind of worked a couple of years at Accenture Management Consulting, then you went on to work at Job Street. So it's all corporate jobs before you finally decided to take the leap with your co-founder Joel and build KFit, right? I wanted to explore a bit about um, that process for you because it, you go from such a, a structured corporate ladder where you know this is where I've got to climb to to go next. And how did, was that transition process like for you? Yeah. So I think after Job Street, uh, that was in 2011. I joined Joel and Kylie, they built Group Small and they sold it to Groupon. So after they mm. sold to Groupon, I SMS them and say, hey, congratulations for selling your company. So I met them at events before and stuff. So, yeah. so then a few days later, Joel asked me to have a meet up for supper. So I really thought it's a supper. So I went in t-shirt, yeah. shorts and slippers. That turned out to be my job interview. And wow. he gave me an offer to be a telesales agent, so inside sales. Okay. So I didn't join as a leader or anything. I joined as a right. inside sales, right? To was this with Groupon? Groupon, yeah. So okay. to call up merchant to whether they want they want to advertise in Groupon, right? So that was in the early eleven, and I have a two month notice period in Job Street, so I wanted to still serve that. So I spent my two months serving notice. When I finished serving notice, so when I agreed to join the company, the company was eight people. After my two-month notice, when I walked into the company, the company had 37 people. Right, that's in 2011. And fun news, but uh, the role that I was supposed to do has been given to others, so I got no role. <laughs> so, no. so for three weeks, I was literally in the company doing random things, just trying to be useful. Right, not knowing anything, so right. a bit here, a bit there, trying to just do something, right? And adding yeah. value in whatever sense that I could. So for three weeks, it was just that kind of aspects. Yeah, just trying to think, oh, how about doing this, how about doing that? Some of my ideas is stupid. And I still remember at that one point I was like too many random ideas, Joe was like, okay, why don't you open up the docs and list down everything that you have in your mind and just put it there. <laughs> right. That was one yeah. way to say, okay. Just put it there, right? So that was in 2011 for a few months, for a few weeks, right? So three weeks. And at the end of the third week, Joe asked me for, so Joe is the founder at the time, right? So asked me yes. that I had just sold his business to Groupon. Uh, so asked me for the lunch. So I don't know. So I didn't think that much. So I don't know whether uh, that would be my termination or whatever, right? I didn't know. So at the end of the lunch, it's like, okay, not sure where to put you. Hey, how about become CEO? So I just became from never managed anyone to a chief operating officer, just like that. Wow. Okay. So you've never had experience in that C-suite kind of level before, and he just promoted you to a CEO. He must have seen something in you from, from that guy who's like running around doing errands and promoting to a COO. Did you end up having a chat with him um, afterwards to see what he was thinking then? I think good question. Never, never asked this question. I think that time we still sort of like, okay, uh, got some idea, got some execution driving, enjoy working each other. So I think this was just thrown into it. And I think that time, maybe also because I think I'm the second oldest, because 
the rest of the team we hired almost all freshmen. So being the old people, so <laughs> this is what they. So I think that time we only had two people, the head of people, and myself. We are both in our start with the three, right in our age, and the rest were all in their early twenties, right. So so being the oldest one, okay lah. So that's why you get into that. So I think that was one of the factor as well. Yeah, I see. So after that, how long were you with Groupon before you transitioned to um, start your own startup? We were there for four years. So 2011 to 2015. We started in Malaysia first. And then from there, we mm-hmm. went on. So late 2011, we got a chance to turn around the Taiwan business. Then after that, we got a chance to do Southeast Asia and India. Then in the early 2013, we got a chance to do Japan, Korea. So basically, I think mm. Joe was good. Uh, I think Malaysia, we did quite well to grow it from nothing, to build it up. And I think the, his global boss, uh, Oliver Samuel. So Oliver Samuel is sort of the father of internet for Southeast Asia. He built Lazada, Zalora, Pupanda, his taxi, and bunch. So offered Joe to take over Taiwan. We knew nothing. And that's how we went on, on it, not, not knowing what to do. I think we never asked for a dollar. Did you have to did you have to move to Taiwan or did you guys handle operations remotely? We actually went there for quite a bit of time for eight months. So in the eight months we, we did back and forth, but we were there quite a bit. And we I think the we didn't ask for a dollar increment. I think the same thing as I became from Telesales to become CEO, I didn't ask for a dollar increment as right. well. I think generally that would be the best way to get a promotion <laughs> in a way. Right. So so I think we went on it. Not knowing what we knew that we have brought up Groupon Malaysia with yeah. the team, but we have never done a turnaround or building up in a different market like Taiwan. Right. And I think thanks to Joe's courage, he did pick it up because he didn't even really speak Mandarin, right? He has some broken Mandarin, but Taiwan is fully Mandarin. So to be honest, is we just went in there, and I knew I knew very little of business or anything of Taiwan. None of us been there, so I think we went there, and just, I think a lot of us just use our basic principle and just trial error. We were lucky that the global gave us a lot of trust to test it. So we did it for eight months. So turned from a quite significantly losses business to basic profitability. And then we went on, we were moved to take care of Southeast Asia, India, and then even Japan, Korea. And I think a lot of those opportunity came and then I think we were like, okay, let me just do it. Let's just do it. So a lot of it is just like, don't yeah. think too much, never knew when we are ready. Yeah. The shoes a lot of time is too big for us. But it's like, okay, just try that, yeah. right? Worst case we fail. So we went on that mindset and just eventually in mid of 2013, we got a chance to manage Asia. So Joe was head of Asia. I get a chance to take care of operation for Asia. So that was a interesting journey building through. I think that time taking out Asia, there was 12 countries, 3,000 right. employees, 50 officers, right? Oh. So. So it was a pretty big choose, but I think we sort of fall onto it at the time. And I think it was a steep learning curve for us. I think when we were managing one, two, three countries, we sort of knowing how do we prioritize and building it. And when mm-hmm. we got a chance to manage 12 countries, I think there's a lot of things we need to unlearn, right? How do you manage a 12 country business where you can no longer be as hands-on because you need to sort of leverage on the next level of leaders to take it. So I think there's a lot of, things that trying to learn mistakes that we make and along the way to get through. Yeah, absolutely. And that brought you to coming out and building your own startup, KFIT. Talk to us a little bit about that. Like what was, uh, you guys were obviously very passionate about the sort of merchant side of things. 
and you guys decided to build KFIT. Talk to us what KFIT is and how did that morph into Thief? Yeah. So I think, to be honest, it was quite coincidental as well. So in 2015, I got here hunted for a couple of roles. So I basically called out Joel. He was on holiday in Japan skiing. I told him that I got a couple of offers thinking of leaving. And he two hours later Can you name drop some of the can you name drop some of the companies that uh, were headhunting you? I so I think what uh, so both both were pretty billion dollar company, one in the telco, one in the right healing. So to, okay. to, to work on it and, and, and pretty big role that I never knew whether I can do it or not, but it was a decent uh, opportunities to go on. I think the telco was to run the postpaid business, basically close to that half of that telco. I think there's only a few telco in Malaysia, so I think yeah. not, too, okay. not too hard to think of. But, but and to be honest, I know nothing, a lot of those kind of things. And basically to, to, uh, told you about that. Two hours later, he called me back and said, hey, how about we start the business together? So that was just how, I mean, during the period before that, we have from time to time went on GoDaddy and buy a website, build a few pages and then drop off. So we'll never really take it seriously, but we have yeah. a few times. I think the most we've done is landing page and a buy a website domain. So that was right. how far we have done for a few previous time, right? Well, working is that. Yeah. And then we both get busy, then we forgot about it. Then a couple months later, a different idea came about, oh, how about build this? Then we go buy the domain again. <laughs> then, so, so that was where we went through. And this, at that time, I think, the few during that same time when Joe was in ski, his friend, Danny from Hong Kong, sent him an SMS about ClassPass in US. So at the same time, this yeah. idea came about. And I was like, and then he gave me a call, oh, how about starting this thing, right? Right. I knew nothing. And I think fitness is very far from me, right? So I am not a fitness person. I don't really exercise. I think it was a very off, yeah. but an idea to start something. So so we went, went on it. And I think we were lucky as well in 2015. The Grab just got became the first unicorn in Southeast Asia. People start looking into, how about investing into Southeast Asia? So we were, to be honest, we were, we were lucky to got onto it and we were able to raise our pre-seed, seed round within a few months of us starting, right? Within the, within, right. So we started in March 2015. We got pre-seed in April 2015. We got seed round in July 2015. So during that few months, we were able to build upon. And I think that the seed round, the... Yeah. Investment term sheet came to us when we have zero customers, zero revenue. Right? We were just building right. on it. So thinking Was it just an idea at that point of time? Yeah, I mean we already hired several people, but the people are serving yeah. the previous company, moonlighting at night, try to build the website. Uh we have a very basic one pager website and try to build the basic app on it. So a lot of things were were at the process. We're a process of signing the first few gym. So it was at the, that kind of station, but I think we were lucky at the right place, right time. And the time Sequoia kept for the, I think we pre-seed, we got a few uh, VCs or friends that came in. And then the seed round Sequoia Capital came in for us. So I think we were very lucky, hit at the right timing. And I think that if it has been 2019 or 2020 today, the same thing we had done, likely we would not have 
be able to raise what we raise, right? The seed mm -hmm. round was a 3.25 million US dollar, right? And added. so basically it was right timing to build upon and went in. So I think that was what it was at that time, right? But we, were, we got a chance to build on it and go through from there. Yeah, so then you guys subsequently went on to raise a 12 million Series A and 20 million Series B. And, and talk to us a little bit about that whole process because you guys have been moving really quickly in the Southeast Asian space. What is FAVE for our listeners who don't know what FAVE is? And talk to us a little bit about what the scene was like before you guys came in and what was the problem that you guys identified? Yeah, yeah. so I think we, from KFI, we did it until middle of 2016. So our Series A was in early, early 2016 and then we went on we wanted to go from fitness into the merchant digital space so we went on to acquire Groupon subsidiary in Indonesia first and then Malaysia and then Singapore right so acquired those things and then integrate migrate rebrand the whole thing into faith so this took us into Q2 of 2017 and I think every, most people may have known of Groupon so Groupon was doing a deal side discounts and everything so we went on that we knew that deals is just one thing that attract a new customer for merchant. But for merchant, they want a holistic, right? A lot of aspects to go through. So I think what Faith does today is basically serving the merchants end to end for many aspects. So I think besides deals bringing new customers, we have them to retain the customer through FaithPay. So FaithPay basically is think of it is that you go to a cafe, you pay using Faith, you get a cash back for next visit at the same cafe. Right. So the next time you came back two months later at the same cafe, you don't even need to remember that you have $3 left uh, from the cashback previously. You just pay and you auto deduct and then you earn a cashback for the next visit. And then from there, we went on to accept multiple different payment methods, credit card, debit card, online banking, e-wallets, even Asia points. We went on to launch gift, digital gift cards. So basically you can buy a top-up value for any businesses. And I think just we talk about those with pay cashback or even the gift cards, basically all these businesses can do it within minutes. I think in the traditional world, you need to basically build an app, investing into it or build a gift cards or build a smart card or paper voucher. But this one is all integrated through. Then from there, we went on to help merchants for more aspects, whether review ratings, account reconciliation, put them on multiple platforms, uh, we build analytics, previous insights for them, analyzing the business. So I think think of it that what big company they may have an analyst doing it for them. So I think we did it across for them. Then we do table ordering where you can scan a QR to order for the dishes. You get uh, we do financing for them. So I think basically end to end. So think of it is that imagine that you run a cafe. Think of what a big size cafe. Think of it like Starbucks. Whatever Starbucks can do, how can we enable? any business to do it. So let's say today, if you have a business in Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, you want to accept a credit card payment. You, in five minutes time, you download FaithPay's app, in five minutes time, someone with credit card will be able to pay. Right. Right, because in a tra traditional process, it will take one, two, three weeks to get a credit card terminal. Mm. Right now, you don't need, you just use your mobile app to download FaithPay's app and you basically go through registration, you can already accept credit card payments, right? Or your wallet payment. So I think is enable that, make it easier, cheaper, better, faster for businesses. And I think constantly trying to understand and learn 
to serve the needs for the businesses. Right. I, I, I really admire you guys because you guys have been one of the more innovative companies that birthed out of Southeast Asia. And I think a lot of trends we often see is like the East um, copying the West. Um, but in this case, because like Southeast Asia has a really different kind of dynamics to the West and where we live from off of like mobile technologies. And, and so I, I just wanted to ask you about, you know, the innovative process for you guys, because oftentimes you guys can't actually look to see what other people are doing because the people who are actually doing those things are your competitors. So you guys have to be the ones who are driving the innovation. Talk to us a little bit about that whole process. Yeah. So I think two parts. I think one is that constantly, frequently talking to our merchants. And when we say merchants may not be just the business owner, but could be the, the salespeople, the marketing people, the operation people, the finance people, or the cashier, or the branch manager. So I think a lot of times talking to them, understand what their needs, what their challenge. Right? A lot of times, what are the things that you wish you can solve? Yeah. Right? And because a lot of them, they actually have the idea, they knew their business, they have the idea, but they themselves as an offline business operator, they can't solve it. So they will, so let's say a lot of idea whether with pay, cashback, or even gift cards. A lot of them, hey, I want to have the ability to store the value. Then they think, oh, like, like this gift card, or oh, like, you see, Mac, uh, Starbucks has this gift card, I also want it. Right. So they will tell us like that. Then we're like, and for us, we know digital space. We know how to make it happen digital, but we will never know the traditional business as well. So I think a lot of that is go there and talk to them. And a lot of times anonymously talking to them. So a lot of time I will go to cashier and ask the cashier, like what are the things that they, they, they face? Hey, why, why certain people use certain things? Let's say in the cashier has three form of different cashless payment. I'll ask the cashier, hey, which one is better? Why this one better? Why this one worse? So a lot of those kind of anecdotes enable us. So I think even like our product design team, a product manager, they frequently go to do merchant interview, merchant validation survey at our merchant place to get feedback. Because in the end, if we listen well, we will be able to make it happen. So I think that's one part. And I think the second part is, I think, observing the trend. And the observing the trend may not be only in our industry. A lot of times, the great idea could come from other industries. And I think whether from China, I think like last year, December, I spent two weeks with Ali, Alibaba, trying to learn what happens in, in China with Alibaba, or even in the whole part. Uh, this year, February, just before COVID, Faith was invited to give a talk at Harvard University in Boston. So I was very honored to get a chance to be there, to share this little startup from Southeast Asia. I think together in the panel was Alipay, PayPal, and New York Times. So I think a lot of time that enabled us to hear from that part of the world and in Europe, India is another good learn cases mm. as well. So I think our latest round during COVID, Pine Labs from India invested in us. So I think that's another chance for us to learn how things work in India. So I think for us, it's constantly going around and looking across. I think Indonesia has a lot of learning cases as well. And I think a lot of this take what works and then adapt it and understand, map it with the pain point or dreams and then and, and go on it. Could you give us an example of something you've seen um, from elsewhere and how you adapted it to your business in faith in Malaysia? Hmm. So let's say maybe you think of it, right? Let's say take that in ride hailings, whether Grab, Uber, people can cancel the rides of uh, right before the driver arrived, right? Maybe you just accidentally book wrongly or whatnot, the cancellation. So 
prior to in 2016 uh, when we when we were buying when we bought Groupon that time for Groupon all cancellation have to go through a human being. That means they have to contact customer service and you have to try to find a way to contact them and then you have to convince them that why you deserve a refund and everything. So I think and in faith as we integrated Groupon back into us in 2017, we basically make it that based on a certain characteristic criteria. So let's say you just bought it within a three days, you haven't used it and you don't have a track record of abusing refunders or anything. Right. Based on a certain criteria. So 90 over percent of customers will be able to press a button and auto cancel and get the cash back into their bank. Yeah. Uh, their account immediately, real time, right? So so I think it's similar and that process saves us 20 headcount. It sounds simple, but it was a and it's something that we learned from Rangeli industry and say let's do it across, right? And that was one of the aspects, right? You just do it and then enable it. And and the other thing is, let's say back then in Groupon, refund, we pay back to customers after 14 days. And we observe, when the customer hasn't got back a refund, they also don't buy. They waited for the money to be in bank before they buy. When we put back money into the consumer's account immediately, within three seconds, consumers now will now take that money and spend. We find that 80 over percent of consumer will spend on the same day that they got the refund. Mm. So by uh, because back then in the traditional business, we say okay, hold the money longer so you can earn more interest, right? Yeah. But if we flip that game, go against it and say just make it super easy for the refund and give that super easy to get the money immediately. I mean, this defies a lot of the finance logic yeah. from a lot of traditional company. We say no, give them money straight. And what we found is 80% of them will now take that money and then put even more money and buy more things. So that actually generates the flow. Right. So I think a lot of it is observing and then enable because I think most consumers are, won't abuse. Of course, there will be a small group that people abuse. And I think a lot of it is leveraging on it and driving that. Let's say it's a, like the 3D secure. So let's say, example, when you do a payment on credit card, you get a 3D the six digit code, the pin tag code or whatever you call it to or one time payment code that you do to validate. Like for us, we actually based on the consumer profile and only a few percent consumer will get the six digit code. The rest actually don't have to. So to make this process more seamless, right? So I think a lot of it is learning across and say, hey, how about in travel industry they do this, in this industry they do that. What can we do in China? So let's say faith, faith, we learn it from China, but it was one of the features in COVID. But they have multiple features. We didn't know what would work, but we say, okay, China got these five, six things. Let's try bring it back to Southeast Asia and try it. Right. And then one of those ways that we think let's try it works. And then that became faith, faith right? So so I think a lot of it is it's not a lot of barrel taking from somewhere but you need to adapt it, but that could be giving you major ideas to see what could potentially work. Yeah, that's really good. So stay close to the ground, listen to what people are saying and continually experimenting with your uh, business models, with your ideas, with your products and services. That's, that's, such, that's such good advice. Um, I'm cognizant of your time that you, you got a meeting later on. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll just close on this note. Um, well, we basically right now we're in unprecedented times with COVID-19. We've seen many big companies like Uber, Airbnb make, um, significant layoffs of their their staff and their their team. 
Um, tell us a little bit about how faith is helping the situation in, in Southeast Asia and what you guys are doing or how you guys are thinking about um, helping businesses pivot and, and work their way out of this. Yeah, and COVID hit us quite badly as well, right? Mm. So let's say take Malaysia, the lockdown was 18 of March. Our business declined 90% on that day. Wow. So it was a pretty hit. And I think every market, you there's a slight iteration of that. But basically, because we serve offline businesses, our transactions were based on people that would dine in at restaurants. Yeah. People that who went for a massage or facial. People that who went to a shop and buying a product to be electronics. People that went to an expo or furniture fair or home living fair to purchase things. People that go to attractions, villa, go to a bird park or zoo or aquarium. People that who went through various services. So most of these were affected by COVID. And I think that if you think zoom out and think of it, almost no business in their 2020 business plan in January this year or late, late last year would have predicted it. Yeah, no one thought about absolutely. it. Right? If you were telling me during, like, let's say even early February, right, during Chinese New Year time, and say, hey, maybe businesses will be closed for a few weeks. I would not believe you. And yeah. I think most businesses won't even talk about it. We would think at that time was like, as China evolved, oh, maybe this is only China. It's right. far from us, right? Right. And I think before the reality really sink, weeks after, right? And I think it just evolved so fast. I think that in the in the most of our living lifetime, I think any entrepreneur, even business people, even a top-notch CEO may not have gone through this in their career, entire career. So, and I think a lot of time at that moment is that, what can we do? And I think I like what Brian Chesky from Airbnb said, right? I think is that during this tough period, whatever you do would define your characteristics beyond, right? I think people would remember that. And I think the few things that we did during that time was like, one of the things we launched is called Save Our Faith. So basically that uh, when a consumer paid during COVID period, consumer had six months to utilize their gift card, but we will pay the merchant immediately. And we also waive all our commission during that period of time. We said that 100% of dollars from consumer would pay to them. And I think this, it may not be a big amount across because we, the gift card was not huge for us, but it symbolizes a direct to try to support the merchant. And even though any amount may save some jobs, may ensure that some salary will be paid earlier mm. and everything. So I think a lot of it going into that, we help the businesses to write memorandum to pass to ministers. And I think even right now, we are working with the governments to rejuvenate the businesses, mm. reignite the businesses. So I think a lot of that aspects, and I think that as a business go through as well, how do you help business to digitize? So there were a lot of big traditional businesses that pre-COVID never thought that would come on board. During COVID, they came on board, right? So I think that's the part that went through, I think innovative solutions, coming across, I think is keep on. And we will have a few launches that I think you're going to see in later part of August or September, and a few innovations that coming about. And a lot of those things actually came during COVID. They were thoughts, ideas, and we're going to start seeing it. I think with PyLabs as well. So I think for the 
those that have never heard of them, they are the largest credit card terminal providers in India. They have a half a million credit card terminals across. They process 30 billion US dollars. And MasterCard, PayPal, Tamasets, Koya, etc. were their investors. So it's pretty interesting to get a chance. And still today, we haven't met their leadership. So we started talking to them during COVID and everything was via Zoom, WhatsApp, right. email, and all those things, right? So it's a new normal on how do you engage us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much for your time. Um, you've dropped a lot of wisdom and a lot of things for us to think about. Um, well, um, where, where can our listeners uh, find out more about you and what, what uh, you guys are doing? Yeah, so I think the, feel free to follow me on LinkedIn. So I think Chen Chao, you. So I think just feel free to connect. And I think that the, for those in Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, feel free to download Faith app. And I think maybe you'll see through. And I think if you have any idea, feel free to share as well. I think for all of you that go through, uh, you have a already building your own startups or going to build a startup, I think always think back on the your target audience, whether consumer, merchant, vendor, whoever it is, and serve their needs. If you serve their needs, great value for them, you will be able to capture. And no one will know best. I think a lot of time is follow your heart and do it. I think for those of you that are still working, I think always add value. I think in any company, in any scenario, no matter good time, tough time, that's where you can learn, add value, create it. And I think that's where you go in. I think that whether you want to stay on career ladder, climbing the career ladder, or whether one day you want to build a journey, I think a lot of things are the experience and the people that you treat during good time and more importantly during bad times. People will remember that. And a lot of times, all this will come back to you, right? Great. And I think helping people in need, whether your friends, whether acquaintance, whether in any aspects, right? I think it's constantly will build through. And when you're not sure, just follow your heart. And none of us will know, be always fully prepared. But if you don't know, in whatever situation, just follow your heart. Do the things that you think will be able to be the right one that resonates to your own personal value. And I think that would be what that would bring you across, no matter how successful or how not yet successful for you. And I think I'll end with, I think, a quote from founder of Stripe. I think as you go through the tough time, it's not that you have failed. It's just that you have not yet succeeded. We will fail the day we give up. I think it's just constantly going through. Tough times don't last. Tough people do. And all the best. Hey, what's up, listeners? It's me again, your host, Joshua. Wasn't today's conversation just amazing? So much gems and nuggets of wisdom packed into today's podcast. And also, Chen Chao was an incredibly amazing guy to speak to. So for any of the listeners based in Southeast Asia, do remember to check out Fave on myfave.com. That's M-Y-F-A-V-E dot C-O-M. You guys can also connect with Chen Chao on Twitter and LinkedIn. Lastly, if you guys love what I've been putting out, remember to share, review, and subscribe to my podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or just whatever platform you're listening to this on. Well, that's all for me for now. Till the next time.